Welcome back to Brandon Wilborn's Fantasy Fiction, where fans of classic fantasy adventures can hear the serialized audiobooks of a fellow nerd and indie author completely for free. I'm your author, narrator, and host, Brandon Wilborn. Thank you for listening. The story portion of this episode starts right after the recap. Last week in The Treasure of Caprick, Louise explained how she escaped from Captain Fallon's men in Dury, and Curian's crew attempted to cross Lake Hasselmere. But Curian's doubts finally caught up with him when they summoned the poisonous fish in the lake, and we left him wounded in the boat. This week I'll be reading Chapter 17. Now I present for your enjoyment, The Treasure of Caprick. Chapter 17 The Signpost The last hints of light had faded from the sky over the bay before the ship dropped anchor so Captain Fallon landed with his men in complete darkness. All thirty of those he had gathered at Whale Sand were with him, along with ten sailors borrowed from the Admiral. However, in his judgment, Muna's presence almost doubled the effective strength of his force. While he did not know the size of the band of thieves led by the King of the Caves, he doubted they would offer significant resistance. Criminals he'd found were often cowards and would run at the first sign of a fight. Of course, with the revelation that the thugs were using magic, Muna's presence would be essential to neutralize that effect. Things appeared to be working out better than he had feared at Dury. However, he knew how quickly a battle could turn. The only thing he truly controlled was his own resolve, and he had never felt so committed. He would succeed in his mission and redeem himself, or die in the effort. The smell of oncoming rain gradually strengthened as they unloaded the boats overtaking the odors of salt and seaweed around the tiny quay at Rama. Fallon watched the new soldiers carefully as they passed the local tavern, the only building with any outside lighting. The prostitutes leaning against the gilded doorway called out to them, but the men remained in formation. Fallon walked over and questioned them about the monks. He flashed two gold coins as incentive, and they quickly told him his prey had gone toward the lake. With Admiral Shay's crew coming ashore, it's probably the easiest money they'll make tonight, he thought. Lifting himself back onto his horse, he took off at a trot and quickly reached the lakeside. It was so dark some of the men only stopped when their horse's forelegs splashed in the water. Torches, he ordered, and his men produced several lights. Muna, still riding behind him, gasped when she saw the water. He craned his neck around and was surprised to see fear in her face. They have crossed over, she said. You must follow them, but I cannot come with you. She squirmed in the saddle and then dropped awkwardly to the ground. It's just a lake, he said. Why can't you come? I cannot cross that lake. She shook her head violently. Her mood was going to affect his men quickly if he didn't intervene. Fallon jumped down beside her and led her away from the shore. Why not, he asked, his voice hushed. Because I see my future there you stupid little toy soldier. Her shout carried in a calm air. There is something ancient beyond that water. Even now it pushes me away and prevents me from going any further. My destruction will follow if I attempt to cross. Then what will you do? Fallon massaged his temples with one hand. With the other he wanted to strike her, but he controlled his anger. I will return to Bollingham. When I arrive I will contact you and you can report your progress for Lord Devasius. The witch took a tone that did not allow for argument. And what am I supposed to do against the thief's magic? 
You have nothing to fear, she said, running a hand down his cheek. He turned away, his face burning with anger. I have put you under my protection, so you should be immune to the madness we have seen in other men who have encountered him. You also have a strong mind, Captain. Do not underestimate your own power to resist when your mission is threatened. What about my men? They will follow your leading. In many ways, leadership is a magic of its own. Her tender tone disappeared, and now she spoke to him with certainty. Be firm in your resolve, and they will not falter. Hurry, then. Do what you must. He turned back toward his men, calling over his shoulder. Our lord cannot go without his information for long. He did not look back to see where the witch went, and assumed she would return to Admiral Shea's ship. As he remounted, he hoped it was the last time he would see her. Deeper in his heart, he knew that he feared facing the magic he had seen at Dury again. But he pushed that down and covered it with anger as he would smother a fire. The witch balks at every shadow when she's not safe in Bollingham Castle, he said to the nervously shifting soldiers. We must press on. There was only one building near the shore with any signs of life, and it matched the description from the prostitutes. Several small fishing boats were nestled against it, and light shone from the single window that looked onto an alleyway. The clouds opened as his platoon neared the building, and rain poured down without warning. The soldiers doused the torches, and Captain Fallon knocked on the door of the fisherman's workshop. A bearded, sinewy man opened the door and peered out into the rain. Inside, Fallon saw other men of similar build stirring large, steaming cauldrons with wooden paddles. They were all shirtless in the steam-filled room and ignored the visitor at the door. Yes, said the man in the doorway. His eyes inspected Fallon's armor and weapons without concern. I must get across the lake, Captain Fallon said. Come back tomorrow, the man said, and began to shut the door. Fallon stepped forward and shoved it back open. Price is no concern. Not for me, neither, said the fisherman. We're done sailing tonight. His rage flared. In an instant, he pulled his dagger and stabbed the man in the throat. He pushed his way inside and threw the body to the ground before the vats at which his colleagues worked. Three soldiers entered behind him before the last weak gurgle escaped the man's throat. The other fishermen stood shocked for a moment, then lifted their paddles as if to defend themselves. Your colleague refused me crossing, Fallon yelled, walking around the end of the row of cooking vessels. Unless you want to end up like him, one of you will ferry us across the lake tonight. They stared at each other, then the one closest to him spoke. Crossing at night would be worse. It's suicide. The Hasselfish would kill everyone on board. Nonsense, Fallon roared. He drew his sword, knocked the paddle from the man's hand, and hewed halfway through his neck. As he fell, the others backed up into a corner. It's true, another cried. The fish kill men every year. Nobody goes at night. Fallon stopped short of attacking him as well. They were telling the truth. He saw it on their faces. They were more afraid of the lake than they were of him. More damned magic. And without Muna, he had no way to cross without risking his men. Since he had met her, he could not escape the supernatural, and he fumed because of it. The sorcery should have made his mission easier, given him more strength and honor, but it only tricked him, stealing the competence he had always enjoyed. The witch toyed with him, and every time he closed on the monks, some invisible hand scooped them away. 
Why was he unable to catch them? He felt trapped by things he could not explain, stuck in his cat-and-mouse game with the monks, ensnared by Muna and her magic. But across the lake, in the canyons and caves above, he had a chance to prove his loyalty and free himself from her noose. He would not waver in that pursuit, but he had to be cautious. As much as it enraged him, he would wait until it was light so he could cross safely. Risking his men would mean failure and potentially his own death before even seeing his prey. You, he pointed his sword at the man who had spoken, show my men where they can sleep tonight. At dawn, you will take us across. He was the youngest of the six remaining men, and he stepped hesitantly toward the soldiers by the door. They grabbed him by the arms, and Fallon nodded for his men to take him outside. As soon as the door closed, Fallon kicked one of the boiling cauldrons toward the remaining barefoot fishermen. A burning tide of water and half-cooked crabs poured across the floor. They scrambled to leap out of the way, shouting in pain as it washed over their feet. In their mad dash to escape the scalding flood, they forgot Fallon and his sword, until they landed within his reach. His fury was partially sated when he stepped back out in the rain. Tobin and Reese dropped their shields as soon as the boat scraped the pebbly shore. Together they lifted Curian over the railing, refusing the help of James and his comrades. Louise hovered next to them, concern furrowing her brow as none of them had ever seen. Moreover, she looked confused, or so Tobin thought. This didn't surprise him. He felt confused himself, and scared. His best friend lay unconscious, at the hands of another friend, on the rocks of a strange beach in a country more distant than any of them had dreamed they would travel. Then there was the poison from the hasselfish. For all his studying, he didn't know what to do next. His head rocked up and down repeatedly, as if the movement would jostle the answer from his mind. Without thinking, his eyes scanned Curian's limp form, and when they set upon the wound in his chest, his medical training suddenly sprang to the forefront of his mind. One of the spines from the fish had lodged near the left armpit. Tobin lifted the arm for a better look and discovered a second spot of blood on the back of the sleeve, with the last sliver of a second quill just showing above the fabric. You'd better tie him up, James said from behind while he unloaded their luggage, and keep him away from the water. That's all the advice I can offer. James dropped a pack, then cupped his hands and made a bird call toward the woods. Seamus and Tully labored to pull the boat ashore. Tobin looked up for a moment, recalling the danger if Curian should wake under the influence of the poison. He told Reese to get their corded belts and tie Curian's legs. Tobin knew that if he were conscious, he would hate the idea, being tied with the symbol he had chosen to reject in front of Noman, but it was for his own good. Of course, if he also knew that Tobin was tending his wounds, he would have to thank him for all the extra study and healing. Pulling the knife from his boot, Tobin cut the sleeve off and exposed the wound on Curian's chest. The sharp spine passed just beneath the skin of his arm, sticking in the flesh like a large splinter. However, the tine in his chest stood straight out almost two inches. They were no thicker than a small twig and looked like polished bone needles. Tobin grabbed the first between the knife and his thumb and pulled it from beneath the skin. As soon as he did, blood flowed out from the wound. Reese winced, and Louise stifled a yelp next to him. Reese, how is it you've always been so eager to cause pain? yet so squeamish at its remediation, he asked to break the tension. Nobody laughed. He ripped the torn sleeve into strips and tied it tightly around Curian's arm. Then he carefully pulled at the quill in Curian's chest. There was a soft snap, and it came out short, leaving the fragile tip inside the wound. 
The broken end revealed that the quill was hollow. Probably is a reservoir for the poison, he thought. God have mercy, he said. We don't have the means to treat this here. He needs surgery to get out the last piece, and we should be breathing a vein to remove the poison. That wouldn't help, said a cracked old voice above them. Tobin looked up to see a man standing at Curian's head. Reese jumped to his feet, ready to fight. The man appeared older than the dean, but surprisingly in better physical condition. He held his hands in front of him, showing he was unarmed. Deep lines scored his face, and his skin was the dark color of earth, darker than Reese's tan complexion. He wore a rough tunic made of hair and an oiled cloak lined with silky furs. It was a more refined outfit than the piles of skins that Gideon wore, though it had the same wild character. Tobin had never seen anybody who looked like him, but the sudden appearance and even more surprising declaration infuriated him. How would you know? he shouted. Because I've seen it before, the old man croaked. Normal medicine won't help. I won't just let him die, Tobin's voice cracked, and he suddenly had to fight back tears. You have to take him to the king's camp, if you can get there in time. Their healers can help him, but the chest is the worst place for a hasselfish sting. Goes straight for the heart. The old man tapped his own chest with a gnarled finger and let out an awkward chuckle. Who are you? Noman said, stepping forward until he almost shoved the man with his chest. And what right do you have to scare these boys? No harm meant. The newcomer skipped backward lightly. But I wonder at the state of the world when monks are so rude. This is the sentry, said James before Noman could respond. Right, right chirped the old man. I am the watcher. I am also sometimes the signpost. He bowed deeply with a flourish of his hand. I can point you to the narrow path. His flourish ended with a finger pointed toward a dense cluster of trees. We're headed there already, Xander, Louise said, still kneeling beside Curian. Ah, Miss Prescott, the watcher said. I didn't recognize you amongst so many strangers, and in such masculine clothing. He paused with his mouth open, holding a finger at his temple. And you startled me, she said. Now I remember, Xander said as if he hadn't heard her. Your coming changes things. Quickly he made a different bird call, and four other men appeared at the tree line. Gentlemen, we have distinguished guests, the last remaining Caprix. Two of you make a sledge for that one, and we'll escort them home. The other two cover our trail and give Evasius's men a false lead. I don't care who comes with me. Draw straws if you must. He turned toward the boat. James, would you mind helping them? Xander's mysterious manner disappeared as he gave the orders which only made Tobin think him stranger than before. We're not going home tonight. James shrugged his shoulders and helped Seamus and Tully pull in the boat. The rain pelted down, dripping off Tobin's hood as they followed the trail through the forest. He and Noman had decided to don their old robes, since they no longer needed stealth. They were within the reach of the King of the Caves, whoever he was, and disguise would not profit them. Reese kept the clothes from Dury, claiming they were easier to ride in. 
Xander and the other sentries brought enough horses from their scouting camp for them all to ride. For Curian, they constructed a sledge of two long poles, with blankets tied between them to support him. The ends of the poles were lashed to Xander's saddle, so that the sledge dragged behind his horse. Their two escorts, introduced as Elwell and Briggs, followed behind, helping the rain to obscure their trail. The narrowness of the track made it easy in the beginning, where they had to ride single file, but further up the hill the trees spread out, and so did the riders. Elwell and Briggs were soon crisscrossing the back of their path to blot out any trace of their passing. The rain was their expert assistant. Tobin rode beside Curian's litter, keeping a careful eye on his friend. Xander was setting a quick pace on the sloping trail, and he did not want Curian to fall and suffer another injury. Louise followed close behind him, and when he looked back at her, he saw the same grief and fear he felt. More surprising than her show of emotions, he thought he could see her lips moving in silent prayer. It spurred him to pray for Curian as well. The depth of his concern had made him forget. Tobin spoke with Curian on the plains about the possible dangers at the king's camp, but neither of them imagined at the time that magic would be one of them. They thought it was only a threat from Avasius's side, but Louise's story of her escape had made Tobin uneasy. Until now. She was still the king's spy, but the concern on her face was enough to win his trust. Noman trotted around him and sidled up next to Xander. Tobin could barely make out their conversation over the patter of the rain. I would like you to apologize to these boys, the dean said. Are you certain you don't want an apology for hurting your pride? Xander replied. Noman scoffed. I see that only insults come from the one who pronounces others as rude. My pride has nothing to do with it. You scared them unnecessarily while their friend lay wounded. Do you cut down a signpost for directing you? This way to this town, that way to another one? Xander pointed in opposite directions. What kind of nonsense is that? The dean asked sardonically. Then why attack the signpost for speaking the truth? Noman stared at their guide. Tobin recognized the expression from the classroom. It came out when one of the novices gave a painfully ignorant answer. He realized that the dean could not deal with anything but the most explicit statements, and the answers always had to fit his expectations. He had no imagination to see the new insult leveled at him through Xander's questions. Are all of your master's servants so inane? The dean finally said. I certainly hope the thief can speak better for himself. Accusing a man of robbery on his own doorstep, Xander mused. Very rude. Now you attack me for the truth. The dean raised his voice and jabbed his finger at him. He took our most valuable treasure, the one our order was founded to protect, and admitted the theft when he left his seal in our treasury. Xander shook with silent laughter. What is so funny? Noman shouted at him. You scream about treasure, Xander said with amusement. But you have no conception of true riches. Things look dark for Curian. He's getting closer to his goal. But what is the Hasslefish poison going to do before he gets there? Will they make it in time? And will he be well enough to face his pursuer? 
Join me next Friday as the treasure of Capra continues. Well, I learned this week that when it rains, it pours. But not always because of the rain. I was away on a trip for my day job for a couple of days, and when I got back, my daughter informed me that there was a leak in the garage. But not from the hard rain the day before. No, I, an appliance upstairs had sprung a leak and dripped down through the floor until it found a way to escape into the garage. It also seeped under the wall and soaked the carpet in the area where I do my recordings. Which, I'll be honest, is just, it's just a big closet. So not only are my feet wet, it smells horribly musty in here, but we also need to get this water damage fixed. I'll do my best to keep recording on schedule, but if my recording area gets torn up, I, I might have to take a week or two off, I'm sorry to say. The audio anywhere else in the house is full of echoes or hums, and I don't know if I can record around a schedule of uh, hammers and reciprocating saws. My voice tends to be best early in the morning, otherwise I start to sound pretty raspy uh, just because I've, I've used it. But uh, I will do my best. Pray with me that I'll be able to stay on top of it so there won't be any delays in the story. I hope your week has been going better than mine. If you've got any questions or comments about everything, I would love to hear from you. You can send me a message or leave me a voicemail by going to brandonwilborn.com forward slash contact. Thanks again for listening to the show. If you're enjoying it, please give it a five-star rating and review if you see that option in your podcast app. Then share the show. Heck, I would even share it with somebody who likes sci-fi or other speculative fiction just because it's kind of in that broader world. And uh, we all need something good to read these days or listen to. That's all for this week. Until next time, Godspeed. The Treasure of Capric is also available in print and ebook formats from all major booksellers. Find a link to your favorite retailer in the show description or go to brandonwilborn.com. That's brand on, not brand off, and Wilborn is as simple as you can make it W I L B O R N. This has been The Treasure of Capric, Book One of The King of the Caves, written and narrated by Brandon M. Wilborn. Copyright Brandon M. Wilborn.